What's up, people? Great to talk with you. Sam Brief, your host and producer of the Mental Game Podcast, and I'm really excited to hand-deliver this exciting episode today with someone who's at the genesis of a fascinating career, and that's Katie Kral, who was just brought on by the Red Sox as their newest development coach. She'll be working in AA Portland with the Portland Sea Dogs in Maine, great part of the country, and a great gig for her. And Katie's got a fascinating story. There were a lot of headlines when the Red Sox hired her because she's female. And anytime a professional team in a male-dominated league hires a female, that's always a headline. But Katie's not just a female coach. She is someone who is super qualified, has this amazing story, and is going to kick ass with the Red Sox. And yeah, she just happens to be a female. As a development coach, she's going to do a lot from scouting to strategy related to analytics and also working with sports psychologists and mental skills coaches to make sure that all the numbers go with the mind. Her background is just as fascinating. I'll let you learn a little bit more about it during the interview, but she's coming straight from Google. She was in baseball with the Reds took a leap out of baseball with Google, of all places, and then two months later goes right back to baseball. So an incredible story, someone who is young, hungry, and ready to rock and roll with the Red Sox. So I learned a ton from Katie in this 30-minute interview. I know you will too. So without further ado, here is a fellow Northwestern Wildcat. Go Cats! It's Katie Kral. I'd like to start, Katie, with a time in this journey, in this life, where you feel you've mentally been challenged. That's a great question, Sam. I think it was my decision to leave baseball, however, briefly, to take a role at Google. That was an incredible opportunity to be part of the global strategy team, focusing on Google Workspace, which is a $5 billion entity that grows at 30% annually. So by no means was it a step backward. If anything, it felt like, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of where I was professionally. Uh, but, you know, I think it came with some soul searching because I, I believe that my identity is so strongly correlated with baseball that in a way I felt like I was, you know, distancing myself from everything that I loved by walking away, even if it was for this amazing new job. Your identity is intertwined with baseball. Tell me the start of that. It absolutely is. I think ever since I was a little girl, I would go to games and I would just consume everything that I could related to the sport. And very early on, I would share with people that I would someday hope to be the first female general manager in MLB. Very glad that Kim Ang beat me to that. Kim actually hired me for my first job in New York at MLB. So She absolutely is an incredible mentor and trailblazer in her own right. But yeah, people knew me as the baseball girl. So, you know, was I becoming the Google girl? If I went to big tech, you know, who was I without the sport? Who was your team growing up? Kind of a house divided with the crawls. We definitely rooted for the Cubs and the Sox. Um, Like the 2005 World Series was really awesome. Like Scotty Pesednik, Paul Konerko, Ozzy Guillen actually sent me a message on LinkedIn. We've never met before saying congratulations when he heard that I got the Red Sox job. So that was super cool. I think eight-year-old me would have been blown away by that. Um, Yeah, eight-year-old me would be like (laughs) completely losing it. Ozzy messaging you. Yeah. And man, you just, I mean, I'm a White Sox fan, so you just took me 
through a heck of a blast from the past with Scott Pudsednik. Thank yeah. you, Katie. <laughs> Definitely. No, and so then worked for the Cubs, Sam, in 2016. So, like, great respect and affinity for both teams in Chicago. So you grow up a big baseball fan, and now you're working in baseball. Mm-hmm. You're headlining things in baseball. You have Reds, Red Sox, the league on your resume. How many times do you kind of have to step back and pinch yourself? And how does that feel? Well, I need to do it more, Sam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. Well, I'll, I'll help you here. This is a great <laughs> chance. Thank you. No, I have been so blessed and I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I've been given because I know that, you know, hard work is a part of it, but a lot of it's also luck. A lot of it's also, you know, people coming before me, laying the groundwork, blazing a trail in their own right. Um, So I definitely, especially like when I'm in the complex now, right. And I'm looking in in my locker room, there's a a jersey that has my number and name on the back, you know, like those moments, even though you have to hustle to like a staff meeting and get your day started. Like I do try to take a moment and think to myself, like, this is extraordinary. And I am incredibly grateful. What's your number? 43. Um, so my godfather, Rick Stelmazic, was the bullpen coach of the Twins for 32 years. And he passed away in 2017. And he was number 43. So I said to our clubhouse attendants, I was like, if possible, you know, that's kind of the only number I want. Otherwise, don't give me a number. <laughs> and they said, we can do that for you. So I'll have it in spring training in a Red Sox uniform and then in Portland this summer. Wow. That's going to be another total pinch me moment. Katie, I'm really curious about the leaving baseball to -hmm. work at Google and possibly put yourself on a crash course to just be corporate for the rest of your life. Because I I do something a lot different than you, but I'm also in sports. I'm also in baseball. And to me, Mm -hmm. the concept of accepting a glitzy job, you know, where you're managing, what was it, $5 billion, this project, yes. right? Billion it's a large billion. entity. <laughs> right, like, that's an awesome job, and I know in, in only two months you learned a ton at Google. It's going to help you for the rest of your career. But if I put myself in your shoes, I'm terrified. Oh, my God, am I going to be a corporate robot for the rest of my life? <laughs> so in that moment, how did it feel inside? Yeah, I prayed about it a lot, Sam. You know, I tried to speak with, a range of people who I felt like knew me really well, knew what I wanted. I think having such a great team at Google and a boss who was, you know, incredibly supportive and saw me at Google long-term, you know, that made me even more willing to take the opportunity. But I think it speaks to Google as a whole that when I did get the offer from the Red Sox, they were like, you have to take this. We know where your heart is. Yeah. You walk in, and have the conversation with your boss, what did that look like? I mean, you, you don't have to spill the secrets, but just the support must have felt pretty nice. Oh, I was terrified, Sam, because it was, we had like um, a holiday break. And then that upcoming week in January, you know, my boss kept saying like, okay, you know, you're going to run these work streams, or we really want you to be the point person for this. So like everything kept getting piled on. And I, I felt like I was leaving them in the lurch in many ways. So I was super worried that I would approach my boss with the offer and, you know, they would be frustrated that I, you know, now they had to reallocate all the work that they had earmarked for me. Um, but, you know, we follow each other on Instagram, like my boss and I, like Stacy Miller could not be like a more wonderful human being. So I, I, I she definitely, uh, she, 
cleared up any concerns that I had. She, you know, knew that this was kind of a once in a lifetime thing. That gives me hope, right? That that that's human nature at its best. Is one human saying to another human, "Hey, yeah, Boston Red Sox, baseball, <laughs> yeah, do that. We'll we'll follow you on Instagram." And, and yeah, I offered her tickets. She's not a huge sports fan, but I was like, "If you're ever out east, she's out in California with the with the Google office there." But she was, you know, she was like, "I'll let you know, Katie." Thanks. <laughs> you owe her a hookup. Totally. <laughs> so, Katie. Now that you're about to plunge into this role with the Red Sox, hiring you, there were headlines. And pretty much every headline centers around your gender. Mm -hmm. I'm curious because there's a balance between just you're a really strong, well-educated professional person who's qualified for a job who got hired to do it and is going to do it well. But you're also blazing a trail. Right, you're a professional baseball female coach, and there are not a lot of you. So, in your mind, how have you sort of managed that balance in in the two hats? You address the nuances really well there, Sam. In the sense of, it is incredible that more women are joining the sorority, not only of on-field roles, but also women in front offices who are executives or analysts. Um, but yes, at the end of the day. And I was thinking about this earlier when I was considering, you know, different conversations that I've had with players or with coaches. Like I am here to add value in a manner that the Red Sox see is very critical. So at the end of the day, yes, I absolutely accept the responsibility that there will be other women and even other people and even men have reached out to me and said, like, I'm so inspired by you, which means the world to me. I am. (laughs) I'm dead serious. Thank you. But I do recognize that, you know, whether it's advanced scouting or in-game strategy, my job comes first. Right. You're not you're not a woman doing the job. You're a development coach doing the job of a development coach. And mm-hmm. it's notable, but it's not everything. And it, right. it's something that I, I really admire. And you're going to be working in an organization in the Portland Sea Dogs who also – have a female broadcaster, someone who's now a friend of mine, Emma Tiedemann, who's just one of the best in the business. At, at any level, any walk of life, she is a star. And I know that'll be pretty cool to have you on the field, her in the booth. Oh my gosh, totally. I can't wait to hang out with Emma in person. I think the fact, Sam, that, you know, like everyone has raved about the staff in Portland. And, you know, to your point earlier about really focusing on the work. I saw a great quote the other day. It's, you know, I want to be a a turnkey, not just a token. And and I I think Emma and I both fit that category in the sense of, you know, we are here because there will be others that will come after us. What does that quote mean to you? I think it's important to recognize that diversity can't just be eyewash for it to be meaningful. And I think that equity isn't always linear. I think the tough thing about gender and racial parity is they're sticky problems and that they don't really have like clear finish lines in sight. Like I don't think we'll ever eradicate misogyny or racism from the world. I don't think that means that we should try, but it definitely is kind of like this uphill climb. So for me, the quote really resonates because it's the sense of you know, I'm, I might be the first or I might be one of a few, but I'm not the last. And how do we ensure that, you know, the story continues and doesn't end here or that people think that we're done, that 
you know, all the, like we've achieved a, a feminist baseball utopia. <laughs> and I know we're a long way from that. And of course you do. Uh, I'm curious, Katie, have you had rough experiences? When I was on a, the Cape, there was a coach who referred to me as the girl who does the stats, right? And it's this, um, you know, we ended up developing like a really good report by the end of the summer. But I think for him, it represented that I was an anomaly. And obviously, you know, it was just a harmless nickname and he didn't mean to be malicious by it. But I, I do think that you, for me to say that there aren't, you know, probably a, a few more bumps in the road for a female in baseball than for a male in baseball, I'd be misleading people. That's not to say that, you know, they're not, you can't surmount them, but they definitely do exist. And I think that's why we need to be so proactive and really aggressive in promoting women and instilling cultures where women can thrive. What's the biggest step that needs to be taken to avoid that? What 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 he called you? Yeah, I think it's having people who call each other out, whether it's words or deeds that don't create a holistic or a welcoming environment. Like I think it's holding each other accountable, um, you know, and also like having a culture that I don't want to say is, you know, overly tolerant, Sam, but like if you do make a mistake, right, like maybe you do something that someone deems is inappropriate, um, you know, making sure that there is that rapport and that level of respect where you can, you know, work through that issue. And it's not necessarily devolving into a cancel culture. I think that there's a really fine line there between making sure that people aren't like viscerated, but also that they feel like they can, you know, still be themselves and still grow. Really important. Mm -hmm. That last point. I mean, you said at the top that this coach who called you the girl who does stats ended up being a good friend of yours. Clearly, mm -hmm. you hashed it out. You formed a good relationship. You did not cancel this gentleman, and he's probably better for it. Absolutely. And again, I think like Bianca Smith, for example, like being with the Red Sox and setting like such a high bar and like showing like what having a, a female coach or a coach of her caliber can bring to the table. And I think that when you normalize having different people in these roles that may have historically been dominated by one subset, I think then people kind of like, you know, their shoulders relax. I think then they're more receptive to maybe having different types of perspectives in the room. As a development coach, you're sometimes going to have to tell people what to do, right? You're a coach. That's part of your job. Have you sort of telegraphed in your mind handling a situation where you might have a not so smart, young, cocky, you know, spending his sinus bon sign sinus bonus, huh? <laughs> signing bonus, young Red Sox prospect who doesn't want to listen to For you. For me, I've always tried to embrace a player centric development philosophy. So, you know, I think as a coach, you also are a teacher in many ways. So you want to make sure, like, let's say, you know, it's something off field, right? Like you're helping them grow as a person. Let's say maybe it's a change that we want to make based on the numbers that like we want to improve, um, like framing strikes at the bottom part of the zone. And we've developed these exercises that we think will help the catcher get there. You know, at the end of the day, like it's their careers. So like, I'm not their mom, you know, I'm going to present them with the information. I'm going to communicate in the way that I see fit. But at the end of the day, like they have to be responsible and they have to be accountable for their actions. I'm really interested in your job. 
development coach. And, and you're sort of giving me little glimpses into what your day-to-day is going to be like. You worked at Google, so I know you're comfortable doing something like this. But give me your elevator pitch for <laughs> what your job with the Red Sox entails. Definitely, Sam. So I would say it's three realms. It's um, advanced scouting. So thinking through who are we playing and how are we going to pitch against their hitters? How are we going to really optimize the skills that we have? So, you know, breaking that down with our catchers and then our pitching staff. It's the in-game strategy. So thinking through during a game, you know, who should we bring in out of the bullpen? Who off the bench do we think would be a really critical bat here? You know, what's the leverage of the situation? Who's pitched most recently? You know, who might be fatigued? Uh, And then the third part would be really integrating data into player plans. So thinking through, you know, based on the metrics or based on the pitch level data that we think is really critical, these are the thresholds that we want the players to meet this year. So a lot of it is numbers, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of it is tendencies of the guys, right? Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's dynamic, Sam, in the sense of, like players can change a lot. I think that's what's really exciting about player development. I think it's why it really is the next frontier in baseball. I think in the post-moneyball revolution, it's about how do you optimize player performance. Um, so that perspective, you know, it's really ever changing. And so there's always a lot to do, right? Because if you see, let's say, a player in instructional league the previous fall, like when he reports to spring training, he might have a new pitch. He might have gained 20 pounds in muscle, you know? So especially at like this phase of their career, there's, there's just a lot of room for growth. How much of it, and I, I'm sort of coming at it from my perspective, which is the mind, right? This, this mental health-based approach. I know there's a lot of numbers. How much of it is that mental health psychology part of it? Yeah, a player's makeup and grit are absolutely crucial to his success. Am I going to put in the conditioning work that I need to in order to run this 300, right? And even though maybe running this 300 in 55 seconds isn't necessarily the same thing as hitting a home run, you know, like thinking through what are the attributes, what are the qualities that I want to have as a player so that as I hopefully ascend the minor league ladder, when I'm at Fenway someday, I'm going to be in the best possible space, both physically and mentally, to really perform. What's your approach if a guy's there physically, but not there mentally? Yeah, we have an amazing mental skills department at the Red Sox. So not only do we have um, coordinators who will like rove during the course of the year, but players always have resources on hand. So like they're incredibly well-trained professionals. And I think having those confidential conversations with those mental skills folks where they feel like they can go to them and it's not going to impact whether or not they get promoted or demoted, right? Like these are people who care about them as human beings first, uh, not as players, you know, as people first, not as players first. Uh, That is amazing. And I think it's a competitive advantage that Ben Charrington brought over. Well, when he was with the Red Sox, it was like really his, um, a huge part of his platform. So that's been cool to see that that's continued, even though he's now with Pittsburgh. He really planted a lot of those seeds. And my understanding is now every major league organization, both with the major league club and then pretty much every level of the minors has mental skills coaches, but also development coaches like you. How intimately are you working with some of those mental skills coaches or a psychologist? 
Absolutely. And to your point, Sam, like it's funny the way that um, baseball kind of mimics each other. Like uh, there's some quote, uh, and I'm going to butcher it. Some of my European history professors will be mad at me, but it's like, um, you know, something like Paris sneezes and um, Europe catches a cold. I think it's from like the Clemens von Metternich, like kind of Napoleon. Or get Paris some damn Claritin. (laughs) But it is the sense of, oh, well, you know, the Dodgers did this or, oh, wow. Like the the Orioles did that. Maybe we should do that. Um, So it's funny. Like, I think there could be something that's happening maybe with one team right now that in five years will be ubiquitous. But in terms of the mental skills coach in my role, I think it's super valuable. And the conversations that I've had with some of our staff um, is related to the, the learning portion of the advanced scouting that we have. So does a player maybe like bite-sized pieces of information? Um, you know, does he want to know absolutely every tendency of the opposing pitchers? Or does he more so want to know, hey, this guy's a side armor. You know, he looks like a lot of guys who have similar release slots. He's mostly like slider fastball mix you know you don't have to worry about a change or a curveball with him too much so like thinking in archetypes for one player can be super valuable whereas maybe some players want really in-depth breakdowns so like being able to work with the mental skills coaches and get a sense of those kind of tendencies and patterns of consuming information that again i think is really a separator Right, and the individual differences are so unique. I mean, you just outlined one guy might want the information, one guy might not want the information, and and you're working with some kids, right? Some of them are, uh, a lot of them are younger than you. Some of them are are 19 maybe, and dealing with the you know sinus slash signing bonuses that I outlined, and um, it's fascinating to me that you're coming straight out of Google. Right, because that is a top-notch institution of the world. Mm-hmm. You're not dealing with 19-year-old kids there, and, and now you are. So for you mentally, how do you make that adjustment? And I know you're still in the middle of it. It's funny you say that, Sam, because I've like told a few players, you know, like I was with the Reds before the Sox or, you know, what I did. And they're like, you left Google? What's wrong with you? You know, who does that? They're like blown away. Um, yeah, I definitely think that adapting to my environment is something that I'm really trying to strive for. And it's actually a mentality that I got from a friend of mine, Montre Hardage, who played football at Northwestern, who signed with the Giants, then was with the Dolphins. And, you know, that at a school like Northwestern, you're prepared for a lot, but then there are also times when you're maybe in situations that are unique or could be somewhat uncomfortable. So I think for me, it's really thinking through how can I get a sense of the environment around me and how can I bring my own perspective, but also recognize that the cadence of being on a minor league field every day is very different from being on nine hours of Zoom calls with people all over the world (laughs) and like trying to figure out like how to you know, like how to outline our strategy for Q1 of 2022. (laughs) I'm so with the former. (laughs) I can't do nine hours of Zooms with Q1 of 2022. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, I'm with you. I don't want to be on the field. I want to be in the press box, but like we'll be at the stadium together at least. (laughs) It's fascinating to me what players might say to you, right? Why'd you leave Google, right? It's Mm -hmm. such a crazy concept to some people, but you you outlined at the front, 
you're a baseball person and you're working in baseball and you're applying all this data and the lessons you've learned from places like Northwestern, <clears throat> go Cats, and the Cape League, <clears throat> go Kettleers, <laughs> to the Boston Red Sox organization. And that is truly spectacular. What have the first few weeks been like for you? And it seems like you're already talking to some players. Oh, yeah. Honestly, it's okay. like a large portion of my day is, um, like, let's say we're in, like, the cages in the morning. It's, you know, having those conversations, getting a sense of tendencies. Like, I had a great chat today with Ryan Fitzgerald, who is um, from Illinois, Burridge. And he went to Creighton, where the emphasis was totally on, um, you know, glove first, right? So, like, make all the defensive plays, but your bat, you know, like, just make contact. And so, when he graduated, he um, wasn't drafted, didn't sign as an undrafted free agent. He went to play indie ball at 22. And the Red Sox picked him up. And it was really interesting, Sam. He said, you know, I just started crushing balls when I was in indie ball because my manager said, as long as you make all the plays at short, do whatever you want at the plate. And he said, basically, why would I not have a, I'm going to hit a home run approach every time I step up to the dish. So, you know, like those conversations, like maybe they begin with, you know, where are you from? You know, your parents still there, that kind of stuff. And then I feel like the, there's this organic transition where you can talk about approach or, you know, like patterns or tendencies or things that they like really respond well to from a coaching perspective. It's that common language that you all speak. And that's why I love working in baseball. And I, I just can tell by listening to you that you're totally the same way. What are you most scared of for the next year? <laughs> <laughs> you ask good questions, Sam. Why, thank it, you very much. You answer, <laughs> you answer questions well. <laughs> I think it's the unknown. Um, we had this assessment at the Reds that we would give, um, you know, kind of like a neurological evaluation to prospects. Like almost every team does something similar where you are, are trying to like get a measure of makeup or how your brain works. Um, and I took it because I wanted to, you know, give it the give it a try. And I scored like two standard deviations above the mean in long-term planning. So I am like the Mike Trout of long-term planning and our neuroscientists. Well, bravo. Wow. Mike <laughs> Trout of long-term planning. You're thinking of like humanity in year 4,000. <laughs> More or less. But so our neuroscientists said, uh, Sam, um, you know, like not everything always has to, you know, fit into your grand plan. Like there can be days that are just a wash. And so I think for me, I'm, in a job that I never even considered. So I think it's embracing the unknown and not getting too caught up in how do these pieces fit into the larger machine, just really trying to embrace and be receptive to what can come in the future. So it's, you're a long-term planner, the Mike Trout of long-term planning, but you're working <laughs> in a really uncertain field and you have to embrace the unknown. Definitely. And I think it can be scary in that, you know, that is kind of a change in perspective for me, right? Like I have to like switch my mental disposition in some ways. Um, but I do think, and we learn this at business school all the time, like the most growth comes from when you're uncomfortable. Like when you do the same thing, whether it's like throwing a, a side session or, you know, if you always approach work from the same angle, like you're, you're not going to develop, you're just going to be who you are now, which could be fine in certain respects. But also if you have those kind of like longer term goals, you need to have that evolution. You mentioned business school 
You are still actively in business school, right? You Chicago? Yes, I should graduate in June. I've got two classes this quarter and then two classes for spring. So let me get this straight. You're working for the Red Sox and you're getting your MBA both yes. at once. <laughs> it, it's been a, a hectic two years. It was actually um, Scott Harris when he was an assistant GM at the Cubs. He's now at the Giants as their GM. And we talked about business school and I had said that I probably preferred getting an MBA versus a JD just for where I felt like the game was headed. And he said, if you can do it part-time, he actually flew back and forth between Arizona and Kellogg. He said, if you do it part-time, Katie, you know, like don't step away. Like you're able to directly apply what you learn in class to meetings on Monday morning. So basically because of Scott, you know, I really wanted to dive in and see if I could do double duty. And <laughs> it's, it's honestly been great, Sam. I think that a lot of my quantitative skills were honed at Booth and then really allowed to flourish or kind of like use the reds as a sandbox in many ways of, okay, if we adapted this project management strategy, would we reach our deadlines faster? If we altered our code review process to involve more people, would we see, you know, like cleaner code, greater level of transfer of information? So from that perspective, it's been great. Even if I sometimes, am, you know, cramming to read case studies <laughs> in between meetings or late at night. Oh my goodness. It's that's hilarious. It's like you might have a huge high, right? A walk-off win. Maybe thanks to some little key that you unlocked in the coaching process and you're riding the highest of high and then it's like, oh crap, I gotta study. I have homework, yeah. Tomorrow, right? <laughs> I mean, hey, we're both Northwestern people. We know that well, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what. There's always a midterm tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. So, Katie, I asked you what you're most scared of as you look forward to the season, which means in order to be equitable, I have to ask you what you're most excited about. You've already told me a lot, but, like, what's top of the mountain? I think being in uniform on opening night mm -hmm. and having my parents and twin sister there, you know, to wear 43, um, like, to hear the crowd, to, like, finally like have it really be the, the catalyst for the season I think that's going to be super special I actually hope I don't cry because I don't want to be like standing on the field like bawling like a baby but I I'm sure I probably will get emotional over it do you visualize I do actually yeah um I have I played golf competitively Annie and I both did um, and had offers to play in college and I feel like it's a super useful exercise to think about what you want um, I think about I visualize Sam like World Series parades. I really do all the time, yeah. like lifting the trophy. Like that, the, the, those are my goals. That's what I want. So, yeah, I think about it. Visualization. It's, it's something I'm trying to do more. Sounds like you've been doing it for a while. I mean, I visualize much like you're visualizing yourself lifting the World Series trophy. I'm visualizing myself as the broadcaster with a microphone lifting the trophy and then saying, congratulations, Katie, here is the trophy. <laughs> I love it. You're there with me <laughs> in the trenches. Do you, do you ever encourage players to do visualization? Cause more and more I'm listening to players at my level say, yeah, before I go out, I'm, I'm picturing striking out the side. Absolutely. Especially like from a hitting perspective, Sam, like you have to walk into the box and a lot of the best players do. And it's like fastball in fastball middle, like home run, you know, you have to assume you are the best player on the field and you have to see yourself as that to succeed because there's so much failure in this game. 
Katie, can you take me through the minutia a little bit of where you are during a game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll be It's like, where's the- Waldo? I show up to the ballpark. <laughs> where's Katie? I will definitely be in the dugout, or I might coach first or third base this year. I have to talk to our manager, Epi, about what he wants. I think there'd be value in either situation. I probably... Um, in a perfect world, like split the time, you know, like I think there's great value in me being in the dugout, especially with hitters, you know, so I can break down like, Hey, you know, like be mindful of the break on his curveball, especially like if you can bury it at the bottom of the zone, right? Like having those conversations just to like prime them to be ready when they step up. Um, but I also do love the idea of like having the chance to like really be impactful on the base passes, base, base paths and, you know, think through kind of like that run creation side of the game. It's so cool that you get to do both. You get to plant the seeds and you get to execute. Yep. What a cool job. (laughs) You you need an assistant? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Katie, it's awesome. I always ask guests of the mental game. Part of it is selfish, but... I'm doing it for the audience, too, and I want you to give both me and the audience a piece of advice. I think that the best philosophy that I would impart is pursue your passion fearlessly and unconditionally. I think that if you're lucky enough to find something that can define you or that drives you, whether it's, you know, family, whether it's work, really being able to embody that, like that's, that's the greatest gift and don't shy away from it when you do, because a lot of people aren't lucky enough to. Right. You're living proof of that. You, you didn't shy away from it. You are lucky enough to have the opportunity, and you're making the most of it. Katie, I can't wait to follow. Thanks so much, Sam. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you coming on the podcast. That's Katie Kral, now a development coach in the Red Sox system. She'll be eating duck fries and coaching (laughs) Red Sox prospects in AA Portland with the Sea Dogs and a fellow Northwestern Wildcat alum, Katie Kral. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Back here in the studio with you. What a great conversation. Isn't she awesome? The things she's learned in like three years out of school. How do you do you Chicago Business School and Boston Red Sox development coach at the same time? That's a heck of a two-headed monster. So shout out Katie for getting that done. I think a lot of listeners of the Mental Game Podcast and certainly the host of the Mental Game Podcast are going to be rooting for the Portland Sea Dogs and for Katie. So big thanks to Katie for coming on, and big thanks to you for joining. As always, I appreciate it. Make sure you take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, and of course, everyone around you, if you can. Anyway, have a great day, enjoy it, and I'll talk to you next time. I've been Sam Brief, and this is the Mental Game Podcast. Adios from Chicago. Chicago.